Hello, you're watching Middle East Matters on France 24. Here's what's coming up in this week's show. Abdel Fattah al-Sisi visits Qatar, eyeing investment in the Egyptian economy as the two countries draw a line under years of diplomatic tensions. A controversial plan in Lebanon to deport thousands of Syrian refugees. We'll hear from Syrians who say their homeland still isn't safe and others who are considering going back. And tourists return to the ancient city of Hatra in Iraq, five years after the Islamic State group was forced from the region. But first, our top story. Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, has visited Qatar this week for the first time since a major rift between the two countries. It was back in 2017 that Egypt joined Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Bahrain in severing diplomatic ties with Doha and imposing a blockade. They had accused the Gulf state of supporting the Muslim Brotherhood and of drawing closer to Iran. Well, the blockade came to an end last January, and now Doha is expected to invest billions in the Egyptian economy, as Andrew Hillier reports. President Sisi's visit to Qatar would have been unthinkable only a few years ago, but his trip shows just how quickly times have changed. The Egyptian president touched down in Doha for the first time since his country had imposed a blockade on the tiny Gulf state when it accused it of supporting terrorism. Qatar's emir had already visited Cairo back in June, in a landmark trip that cemented a détente between the two. It's a turnaround that analysts say is driven more by Egypt's desperate need for foreign investment. You see that with the war in Ukraine, they've been really badly affected. Egypt is the number one importer of wheat, and 80% of their wheat was coming from Russia and Ukraine. Um, they're struggling with their currency plunging to near record lows. Uh, they have near 10% unemployment. Back in 2017, alongside Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, Egypt cut diplomatic trade and transport links with Qatar over claims it was supporting terrorism. Doha has always denied those allegations. In the end, Qatar was able to soften the impact of the blockade by strengthening ties elsewhere. They were able to get around the, the blockade by improving their relationship with, with Turkey and Iran. And that was exactly uh, what the Gulf countries were trying to prevent from happening. So they didn't really suffer economically. Qatar's investment in Egypt could prove to be an economic lifeline. Hundreds of thousands of Egyptians live and work in Qatar, sending millions of dollars back home every year. Back in March, Doha had already promised to invest $5 billion into Egypt's struggling economy. Qatar Energy, the state energy giant, has also announced a deal with ExxonMobil to develop a gas field off Egypt's Mediterranean coast. Next to Lebanon, where the government is drawing up a controversial plan to deport thousands of Syrian refugees every month. The country is in the midst of an economic meltdown and its government says it can no longer host over one million Syrians. NGOs, though, say forced deportations are illegal and that it's not safe for Syrians to return. Our reporters in Lebanon have been to meet some Syrians who are weighing up the prospects of going back. The refugee camps in Arsal sit at an altitude of 1,400 meters. Nearly 70,000 Syrian refugees live in these makeshift tents. As winter approaches, Umbasil is worried. We're in a miserable situation, cut off from the world. People don't have jobs. 
May God help us to overcome the winter, the cold and the snow. Here, the winters are harsh. Temperatures often drop below zero. It has been almost 11 years since Suad and her family settled in this camp, but now she is thinking of returning to her village in Syria. We're dying in total indifference. I'm 70 years old. I would like to go back there for a few more years to be buried alongside my family, not here. I don't talk about it much, but honestly, my heart is broken. Lebanon is in the midst of a deep economic financial crisis. And its government is planning to deport about 15,000 refugees a month to ease the burden on the state. The UN and NGOs have spoken out against forced deportations. The ideal solution would be a plan between the Lebanese and Syrian governments and the international community to ensure that refugees return safely and voluntarily. Security. That is Idris's main concern. At 32, he wants to resettle with his family in Europe. There is no way for this young couple to return to Syria. Impossible, impossible. I will go anywhere except Syria. If I went back, I would either be arrested or forced into the army. I've nowhere to stay and live. I'm a father with young children. I can't afford it. Of course, my parents are still in Syria and I would like to see them again and be by their side. But I can't when I think of my husband and my children, their future and their aspirations. For this family, the future is across the Mediterranean. You see the sea, son. Inshallah, we will be on the other side of it by the end of the year. You will be able to live with dignity there, like all human beings, and have a future. Idris dreams of a new start, far from his homeland, torn apart by years of war and violence. Well, staying in Syria, there is growing evidence the Islamic State group is gaining strength in the country's northeast. Sleeper cells have been carrying out increasingly frequent attacks against civilians and against Kurdish fighters. Our terrorism expert Wasim Nasser has been looking into the issue and he joins me here now. Wasim, um, what can you tell us first of all then about the resurgence of the Islamic State group? Why are we seeing their return now? Because actually we have uh, 191 attacks documented from January till the 7th of September. And uh, in the latest week, there were many attacks occurred. And one of the most important was the killing of uh, four uh, YPG recruits. And you have the footage uh, where they got uh, handled by the Islamic State on their way from their training facility with the U.S. Uh, military to their, uh, to their uh, village. So we can see it here. It's on broad daylight where they were killed and most probably those are not even Kurdish recruits but Arab recruits from uh, from the region and uh, we have a map that shows us the latest attacks since the 1st of September and if we can uh, take a look at it we'll see that the areas where it's happening are just next to uh, IDP uh, camps and even of detention facilities where many jihadis are being detained among them some western jihadis and among them some French jihadis so those latest attacks were just from the the 1st of September up to this uh, up to uh, this week. And there is particular concern, Wasim, about one camp. It's called Al Hal. It houses, houses tens of thousands of people, some of whom lived under the ISIS caliphate mm. when it exists, existed. Now, tell us today, how much influence does ISIS have inside the camp, and what would happen if 
the foreign individuals there, the foreign jihadists, were freed. Well, actually, Al Hol, the camp of Al Hol, they have, we have families of jihadists who are detained there, Iraqi Syrians, but also foreigners among them, French. And the thing is about the camp that it is totally uh, under the influence of the Islamic State. Uh, the APG tried to counter them uh, lately with very mitigated uh, success. We know that they have 80 births per month in this camp. And those people are left in this camp. But the most difficult uh, also issue to handle is detention facilities. And here we are looking at the Hasaka detention facility that was attacked by the Islamic State in January of, uh, of this year from the outside and from the inside. Hundreds of jihadis broke through. And here we see them breaking through the walls of that prison. Hundreds are still unaccounted. Among them, some uh, figures and commanders, jihadi commanders, locals, Syrians and uh, Iraqis. In other detention facilities, like in Derik, we have French uh, jihadists being held there. So the situation is getting worse and worse, and the, the chances of a prison break like this one are uh, getting uh, more and more uh, possible, knowing that in the dogma of the Islamic State, breaking prisons is part of it. They did it in Iraq, they did it in Syria, they did it, even did it in uh, Congo and in, in Nigeria lately. And there is concern, isn't there, that if Western fighters were able to escape from these prisons, they could come back to Europe, carry out attacks here. But obviously, perhaps the biggest concern is for Syrian and Iraqi fighters who would pose a risk to the region if they got out too. Well, actually, it's a very good uh, reminder, knowing that attacks that occurred in Europe were conducted by Europeans. So uh, for the Islamic State to have European fighters in this rank, having the capacity to go back to Europe and attack Europe is very rare. But this uh, rare uh, element is in those prisons. So, of course, the Islamic State will try to liberate them. And as you said, most of the prisoners there are Syrians and Iraqis. Regarding the Syrian part, many are being able to get out by uh, paying bribes, by making uh, local deals brokered by local uh, um, uh, heads of clan regarding the Syrians. Regarding the Iraqis, Iraq doesn't want them back. So they are still there in those camps. And one most important thing regarding the camps and even the detention facilities, that young men and boys are growing in those camps. So, so youngsters who are underage today will be able to carry out arms tomorrow for the Islamic State, if it is the Islamic State that liberates them. And here we see some footage of uh, this year uh, from Syria, and we see that the group is succeeding in regrouping and, and uh, constituting those sleeper cells that are less and less uh, sleepy. All right, a real concern indeed. Thanks very much for your analysis. Wasim Nasser, for us there. Now, another place where the Islamic State group did have significant influence was northern Iraq. But today, five years after the fall of the caliphate, life is very different and tourists are even starting to return. Brian Quinn has this report from the ancient city of Hatsra, just two hours from Mosul. Decked out in travel gear, cameras in hand, this gaggle of visitors may be small, but its very presence could be a turning point. The tour group is among the first to visit the ruins of the ancient city of Hatra in northern Iraq. Built between the 2nd and 3rd centuries BC, the site is located just two hours from Mosul, the former capital of the Islamic State group that was recaptured in 2017. 
This is the first organized visit and the participants number almost 50. The trip was rushed, but our goal next time is to organize an extensive and detailed visit. We expect the number of visitors on the next trip to be higher, maybe more than 200 people. During their occupation of the region, Islamic State group jihadists destroyed a number of archaeological sites, including part of Hatra. In these propaganda images, we see them tearing down statues and bas-reliefs. Two years later, the city was liberated. Iraqi authorities have been leading restoration work ever since. The rare foreign tourists here also remember those images. It has great history, many gods um, who were worshipped here. It's beautiful, um, a beautiful structure, uh, a lot of history, but at the same time a lot of um, unfortunate events that took place here with IS. The tours and restorations are part of a larger strategy by the Iraqi state as it leans on its architectural heritage in a bid to boost tourism figures, a monumental task in this region torn by decades of war. Well, that's it for this episode of Middle East Matters. Thanks very much for watching and do stay tuned for more world news here on France 24.